Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Dialogue. Dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue. Dialogue journal. Dialogue. Dialogue. It's the 50th anniversary of Dialogue. Welcome. These special Dialogue podcasts were recorded at the Spirit of Dialogue Conference at Utah Valley University on September 30th as part of the 50th anniversary celebration held that day. In this session, moderated by Greg Prince, Margaret Blair Young, Darius Gray, Alice Faulkner Birch, and Paul Reeve describe why it's important to let our differences make a difference, Dialogue's role in Mormon diversity. This being the presidential debate season, I would like to begin with an apology to Lloyd Benson. I know Brent Rushworth. I have worked with Brent Rushworth. I am not Brent Rushworth. <laughs> Brent was unable to make it because of some family situations. Furthermore, I don't know Ignacio Garcia. I have never worked with Ignacio Garcia, and you are not Ignacio Garcia. <laughs> Since I am a last-minute substitute on moderating this panel, I would like to take some license in doing that. We have primarily been looking backwards today, and I would like to ask this panel to look forward, not at what dialogue of the church has done over the last 15, 50 years, but what needs to be done in this broad field of diversity as we look forward to the next 50 years, and how does dialogue and the spirit and mission of dialogue help us to get there if we can get there? So we'll just start with Margaret and go down, say whatever introductory remarks you want, and I'm pretty sure that that's going to engender a lively discussion. Right. I will do this in English. Um, I, I, I have actually been thinking exactly when, when Greg said he wanted to talk about moving forward. That's exactly, that's the phrase that has been in my mind uh, for the last several years is, okay, we've really got problems now. How do we move forward? One of the things I personally have done is study peace building. Uh, I've done, I went to BYU Hawaii with my son and we, we studied that. I've prepared my brother, uh, who is the husband of Gabby Stanley Blair, who spoke this morning, uh, has an online university, and I've created a whole course, which I intend to take to the Congo at some point, uh, to teach peace building. Obviously, it's not, you don't just go to Africa with peace building. It's peace building within yourself, peace building within your community, peace building from one community to another. I would love to see greater integration of uh, higher level church leaders with Calvary Baptist, for example, in, in this area so that our communities can be more mutually supportive. I'm eager to see, uh, to not have the camera feel like it has to pan in on the one black face in the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Uh, for those of you who have been keeping track, okay. And I would just like to point out that every black face in this audience is here. Uh, except Robert. Robert is there. Uh, somebody get a camera to pan in on that. <laughs> Uh, but here, at Dialogue, we, at, at, at this celebration of 50 years, we should have more faces of color. Uh, when Darius and I have done MHA, he's been often the only person of color there. 
we need more. There have sometimes been submissions. The, le the quality of the submissions has to be extremely high. But uh, we need submissions by people of all ethnicities um, and for whatever, whatever journals or magazines we're, we're involved with. So that's just my tiny little first two seconds. I too will uh, speak in English. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward, and I think to do that, which is what I, I think is required of us, because that's the only thing we can change. We need to have the context, though, of being aware of the past. And without that, I, I don't know that we would have the basis for communications to move forward. Um, move forward with what? move forward how and how differently than we've done in the past if we don't know that past. So I, I hope uh, that what we do as we endeavor uh, to move forward is that we recognize we have to do it in that context and not be shy about those days that have gone before. Uh, then we know what the task is before us if we, if we approach it that way. I'm hopeful about the future. Uh, I've seen some marvelous things occur just in the last uh, few months, uh, things that uh, would not have occurred years ago. Um, there is great hope among this people. Uh, the gospel should provide that, but then we are the cog in the wheel that makes it happen. And uh, I, I see such great change taking place, so it gives me hope. Um, I'm looking forward to being a part of this panel and hearing from the others. And uh, I want to thank all of you for being here. And it's so great to see so many friends of so many years. So it, it makes me feel at home and comfortable. And that's always a good feeling. Thank you. To Alice. Oh, no, she's got it. Um, I'm going to um, kind of look back as I start to look forward. I want to share a quote with you from Jean Bingham from the General Primary Presidency uh, from last Saturday's uh, women's conference. She said, we sometimes look at others with an incomplete or inaccurate understanding. We focus on the differences and perceive flaws in those around us where our Heavenly Father sees his children created in his eternal image with magnificent and glorious potential. I, I think that um, we can receive examples and even I would submit a template of how to go forward from as we look back. And, and I submit the March on Washington as that template. Um, that was more than a great event and more than a, a life-changing event um, impacting the U.S. The, the players, the main players, were Martin Luther King Jr., a preacher with the gift of speech, A. Philip Randolph, a labor leader with the gift of vision, Bayard Rustin, a homosexual with the gift of organizing, and Rochelle Horowitz, a white Jewish woman with the gift of the compulsive or OCD brain. Um, the preacher, the labor leader, the homosexual, and the Jew is the beginnings of a joke, but what they accomplished in our history was indeed no joke. They accomplished something that um, they used their differences not as a hindrance to, but um, as the means to bring about the March on Washington. Um, they needed somebody who was compulsive enough, and I love this, because um, I share that a little bit. 
But they needed somebody who was compulsive enough to organize those buses without the, getting the people there. There would have been no march on Washington. Martin Luther King would have spoken to who, you know? And without the selection of her by, um, by Bayard Rustin, um, there would have been, again, no, no, no buses. And I think that that is a template um, that we can have to, to, um, to every great achievement, focusing our united goal with the mindset that our differences are not a barrier to the achievement, but our greatest tools to achieving our goal. So uh, following the killing of nine black people in Charleston in June of 2015, I captured some of the responses uh, on social media from Black Latter-day Saints after attending LDS services that Sunday. One person wrote, in my ward, even the crickets did not chirp. With regards to the Charleston Nine, it was quieter than an empty building. Even an empty building makes noise when it settles. I find myself in a tight spot. There was a pastor, Elder Blakely. He often preached about a tight spot. Now, over 25 years later, I get it. I'm in it, and it is so tight. I'm struggling and don't know if I'm going to make it through without a shove. Another said, I flocked to 19th Street Baptist Church and basked in what true worshiping and mourning looks like. Because Lord knows I needed it. The junior pastor there spoke of some deep, beautiful truths, leading off the sermon with statistics from Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. And you already know, leading off with that, he's going in deep. He transitioned into defining two words, compassion and father, and then proceeded to delve into every ounce of the prodigal son from the perspective of our compassionate father specifically and directly to the point of reference as a disciple of Christ being gifted, this rich, beautiful black heritage in the midst of these vicious winds that howl like this. And then I went back to my ward where the crickets chirped. And I said, nope, they have to be honored, and I made sure to speak. So as a white man... If I can add anything to the conversation on diversity in Mormonism, it is this, that as a predominantly white church in the United States, we have yet to grapple with the power of whiteness in American history and in Mormon history. Across the span of American history, whiteness dominated the social, political, and economic life of the country. Politicians equated being white with citizenship and fitness for self-rule. It was a socially imagined category which was taken for granted, deemed normal or natural, and functioned as the preferred condition in American history. As a result, sometimes white people like me assume that race is what other people have. White Mormons like me sometimes think race is somehow invisible for white people and therefore, America's racial problems do not impact or affect white people like me. As a result, what I think has been missing from the dialogue around diversity and Mormonism is whiteness. I wrote a book that suggests that the Mormon racial story is best understood when we don't take Mormon whiteness as an assumed fact in the 19th century, but understand it as a contested variable. And I lay out that racial trajectory in the book what does that mean? Um, Greg's question was for uh, Mormonism moving forward. 
And I hope what it means is that 21st century Latter-day Saints can learn from the fact that whiteness was not an assumed fact, a contested variable, their own white ancestors, their identity was called into question. Can that provide a basis for empathy or reaching out and understanding that the person they're sitting next to in the pew who might be of a different skin color, might be suffering, might be aching, might be hurting when they come to worship after another incident of racial violence. Where's the empathy? Where's the compassion? Black Latter-day Saints sometimes feel invisible in their chosen faith as if the people that they worship with don't understand that something's going on in the nation. We can do better, we must do better, and I see it as a whiteness problem. And white Mormons need to understand and show that empathy, show that compassion, make spaces where we can simply listen. White Mormons like me would do well to listen to our brothers and sisters who might be hurting. What harm does it do to let them speak their truth? We don't need to rush in and try to fix anything or bear testimonies that the church is still true. But sometimes we do need to be quiet and listen, show compassion, have empathy, and practice what we preach. That charity never faileth. And when we are at a loss for what we do, or when we're at a loss for what to do or how to respond, my experience is that charity will never fail us. About four years ago, three things happened, not at all linked to each other, except that it's the same topic. One was that I gave a high council talk. It turned out not to be my last one, but it could have been. <laughs> the bishop asked that I address the topic Staying the course when the going gets tough. And among the things I talked about was racism in the church. Afterwards, a lovely black lady, I think from the Caribbean based on her accent, came up to me and said, thank you. She said, if you think racism doesn't exist in this church, try dating a white guy. <laughs> Number two was that Darius and I sat down and talked for about three hours, or I listened for about three hours, as he talked about racism in the Mormon church since 1978. The third was a week after the 2012 presidential election, there was a small article in the Salt Lake Tribune that apparently not too many people paid much attention to. A group using whatever technological wizardry had monitored tweets nationally and had filtered language and then clustered the tweets geographically. Number one in the country for total racist tweets, not tweets per capita, was Alabama. Number two was Mississippi. Number three was Georgia. Number four was Utah. I am um, not a Utah resident, but as far as I can tell, Utah, you got a race problem. And I think the church has a race problem still. Uh, and it appears to be one that's increasing, and I think it's defensible to say that the current presidential campaign is widening that racial divide even more. What do we as a church, as church members, as devotees of dialogue do to try to reverse that trend because it's ugly and it's destructive? 
I'm going to pass the turk. Do I ask while I think? <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> Greg, uh, I concur. Uh, going back to the uh, early 1990s, there was a resurgence in racial insensitivity. That's kind of the same racism, but racial insensitivity in the country, which I felt here in Utah. At, at that time, I was employed at the Brigham Young University. And uh, it was interesting to feel it there at the Lord University. I, I thought it had settled down, and I, I honestly, without having done any research, uh, believe that it did until recently. And it has reasserted itself on steroids. And uh, the comments that come in to me uh, by phone, by text, by email, uh, in person, uh, families journeying to Utah and asking for meetings and sitting down and discussing the issues that they face as persons of color within the church uh, are real. And, and we, we may try to deny that, but if we do, we won't then be able to address that. And we must, we must. Um, gentleman to my left did a marvelous op-ed in the Deseret News a few days ago. Um, Black Lives Matter, Mormon Lives Matter. If you've not read it, I, I highly suggest you do so. But you also might want to read the responses that came in thereafter. <laughs> because they, they give a sense of the issue, of the problems that we face. Um, race, matters of race, attitudes about who people are and are not need to be addressed. Not only for the sake of this country, but for the sake of this church. If we indeed are one family, I, what is it, uh, Moses chapter 1, verse 39, to bring to pass what the immortality, what, help me someone. This is my word from Lori. Of man, all of us, not some subset of us, we have a charge that has been given us, and we will not be absolved from that charge. Uh, just thinking of the experiment in South Africa that was not totally successful, but the full title, not just reconciliation, but truth and reconciliation. And starting with acknowledging, that, meaning that people have to know the past. We, we have, and, and that's the American past, but also the LDS past. Um, I'm sort of, I think I, in this room I might get a better response than I do in most other rooms. How many of you have read the Gospel Talk at on Race and Priesthood. Hands way high, please. Okay. Yeah. And normally I will get about five. Uh, it, it has not received the attention. You, because you're in the choir, the music was passed out to you, and you were waiting for it. You, you know, I, I got a call uh, from Darius uh, after it was out telling me that it was out and I dropped everything I was doing to go read that, and I'm guessing that many in the audience did as well. But it was not on the radar for, I would say, most. I believe the stats tell us that only about 10% have read the entire essay. 
uh, of Latter-day Saints throughout the world. So that's one of the ways that we get to the truth so that our, our children understand. My, my children were blessed in, in a way that, that they did get some of the, uh, they, they got the life of Jane Manning James. That was a part of their growing up. We were doing a play about Jane. Uh, I, they, they would hear firesides that Darius and I gave. So they got a little bit of that. Uh, speaking as Ignacio Garcia, I took my children to Guatemala, and they saw what I got to see with my father, where I knew how deeply he loved his brothers and sisters. He referred to them as his teachers as he was trying to learn their languages. I saw him weep uh, at the losses that some of them had experienced, serious losses. And my children got to, when I took my children to Guatemala, they got to see me in that same thing. That legacy, my whole life legacy, includes pictures of my father with people who did not look like him, but who I knew he loved and who I, I saw him weep over. Uh, that's something that I've been blessed to pass on to my children. Um, that's, I think, a part of what we as parents or grandparents have to take in mind, that as we involve ourselves in the global community, uh, and I believe my sister-in-law also mentioned the initiatives that we can be involved in, that our children need to see that as part of their inheritance, that, that we are not so insular, but that we are truly caring for other people. And, and that involves also telling the hard stories that they've got to know so that they understand that this is part of our repentance and then comes the day of glory when we truly are brothers and sisters. I, I moderate um, a group called Black Latter-day Saints and there are um, a lot of um, non-black members who are in that group and one day um, somebody said something that was not racist, not offensive, but um, then somebody else came in and made a comment and it began to be an argument. And um, in the midst of this argument, there, um, there began to be racial slurs and um, degrading words that were thrown um, from the black members to the white members and from the white members to the black members. And um, this is on Facebook, by the way. And, um, and so I stopped the posting. I ended it, and because you have that, as an administrator, you have that ability. And there were a lot of people who got angry that I allowed that entire thread to remain. And so I made a post and I said, I'm allowing that thread to remain because it proves that there is racism in this church. And if we, right here, this few group, although we are on Facebook, social media, cannot discuss a topic without bringing in racial slurs and degrading remarks, how can we ever, as an entire church, accomplish that? And, um, and uh, I got a lot of uh, messages sent to me that I should, I should delete the threat. It wasn't representative of us as a church. It was not appropriate representation of us as a church. And I said, no, it will remain because it, that, because the example needs to be there. But we have a lot of work to do. If a small group of people gathered together cannot discuss the difficult subjects, granted they be difficult, um, without bringing these ugly words and ugly remarks into them, and without dredging up however deep it lies or 
however close to the surface it is, the, um, the hatred or the anger that comes out in such ugliness and such darkness, how can we um, ever, as, as a state, the state of Utah, achieve that? Um, so I know it's kind of early in, in our time, but this is what I'd like you to think about is um, one of the things that um, we've talked a lot about that I've had a lot of sisters come to me in Genesis about and that my husband Robert and I have discussed and um, that I hear a lot of uh, comments is that there needs to be a general authority at the pulpit um, from general conference um, read or read excerpts at least from the essay, um, Race and the Priesthood. And um, so one day we were talking about that, and Robert said, why does it have to be a general authority? Why can't it be us, each one of us, in our own individual um, a singular sphere, doing that, where we go to church, in the communities where we live, in the groups where, where you know, where we participate in the people we talk with. Um, so I, I, I tried that, and you know, of the group of friends that I was with one day, they were all white, um, I said, you know, about that, that essay on race and the priesthood, and they said, what, what essay? And I said, you know, the one the church published on the website, they said, the church published something about, about race on, on the website? the church website? I said, yes. And they said, oh. I said, so you haven't read it? And they said, no. And I, and I thought, yeah, we do need to begin with our friends. We need to begin at home where we are. So the call to, the call to action that I want to put forth, again, I realize it's early, is within our individual spheres to be able to make a change happen within the church overall it's got to happen with each one of us as individuals doing it where we are, where we live, where we work, um, where we go to church, in our wards. If you get the opportunity to speak in your ward, why not find a way to incorporate, even if it's one or two sentences from that essay? That will make a big change. Um, Robert and I are asked to speak from time to time, and I've made... Um, a decision that every time I'm asked to speak, I will talk about that essay. I sat in church one day in my Relief Society, and we were talking about the, the different ways that the, the leaders of the church talked to us. And um, they, you know, they named General Conference and um, our wards and state conference. And I raised my hand and I said, the church website. And somebody said, Oh, I never thought of that. And I said, you know, there are a lot of members who think that even though it's posted on the church website, the leaders have nothing to do with that. They don't give authorization for it, and it doesn't come um, via um, that stamp of approval from the top. It's something that somebody sitting in a little room somewhere decides to do all by themselves, and they don't recognize it as official church. And so that's what I present, is going forward, we need to talk about that, we need to share that. Because if we're talking what is taught from the general leadership, 
what used to be taught or myths um, that blacks um, were cursed and that in some places is still being taught. And what needs to be taught now is that sentence from race and the priesthood. We unequivocally declare that blacks are not and were never cursed. Alice, uh, I agree completely, but I think that's the sound of one hand clapping. And the other hand is going to the top. Darius, you can correct me if my dates are wrong, but it's been a decade since President Hinckley spoke out against racism in a general priesthood meeting. I think it was 2006. It was April of the priesthood session in 2006. Yeah. It was a very strong, uh, very appropriate statement that didn't mince words. But that was a one-shot affair, and you haven't heard it since. And in spite of how strong that message was, I think that the echo died a long time ago. How do we get the people at the top, in addition to the grassroots efforts, Alice, that you are talking about, how do we get them to keep talking about that? Because one appearance at the pulpit doesn't get it done. We had a panelist earlier today who talked about the fourth mission of the church, helping the poor and the needy throughout the church. How many times, or how many of you in the past five years have heard that from the Pope of the General Conference? Huh? Get the point? That started with President Monson shortly after he became president. The, Wesley, the president of Wesley Seminary, not long after that, came out and had a meeting with the First Presidency. He called me right after and he said, this fourth mission of your church could really take traction. I hope you can continue. And then it died. The same thing with this. If that statement doesn't keep getting reiterated right from the top, it isn't going to hit home. Darius? Um, we're at the point we've, we've laid the groundwork for what the issues are, uh, and now it is forward-looking. What are we going to do about it? Alex uh, has responded, and so has Greg. I would urge you, as I think Greg is, but uh, I, I want to be a bit more precise, I would urge you to let the senior brethren know that this is a topic you would like to hear them address. I have found them to be responsive. Uh, I'd like to repeat, I have found them to be responsive. Once they are aware of an issue, often they are unaware. They're terribly busy. They have so many demands on their time, so many issues. And if one is a little bit hotter to the touch, there would be the natural tendency to leave it alone. But they need to know that it needs to be spoken to. I have face-to-face -face requested that uh, on two occasions with two general authorities, one a member of the 12, one a member of the 70. And I've made the request that it not be done one time, but multiple times. I made the point, how many times do we hear an address speaking about uh, sexual uh, inappropriateness of one sort or another? And I pointed out to this member of the 12, we don't speak to it once, we revisit it almost every general conference, uh, and we need to do the same with matters of race and ethnicity and who we truly are as brothers and sisters. So I, I would suggest that you think about approaching one of the general authorities, or more, and advocating, letting them know that you see a need for 
Let me just ask a show of hands, how many of you know how to contact your congressman? <laughs> how many of you know how to contact a general authority? If you want to send an email, last name, first initial, second initial, at ldschurch.org. Okay? And they will read those. So the only thing I was going to add, I think um, this question has been covered quite well. Um, as a historian, it feels like uh, to me that sometimes our racial past paralyzes the church uh, and prevents us from leading out on an issue which I think we have a lot to offer. Uh, if we go back and recover the universal racial vision of the first couple of decades of, of Mormonism before we started that move towards claiming whiteness for ourselves and distance from blackness, um, I, I think we have a profound and radical racial vision that simply because of the racism in our own institutional church, the priesthood and temple restrictions, we feel paralyzed of leading out and so we do nothing and we say nothing. Uh, and we allow the <clears throat> racial incidents to take place and we hear crickets. Uh, so, coming to terms with our racial past, appreciating the nature of the story, universal temples, universal priesthood, move towards segregated temples and priesthood, and then back to universal temples and priesthood after 1978, right? just that very trajectory. Um, I mean, we have Lester Bush in the audience, and this is Dialogue's Celebration. Um, we need to acknowledge that he published that basic trajectory in 1973. People in 2016, uh, Latter-day Saints, are still trying to come to terms with that, with the race and the priesthood essay, right? So it's been around for a long time, and yet the way that we tell our story as Latter-day Saints to Latter-day Saints has to change. It's in a process of changing. We have to acknowledge that the average Latter-day Saint does not read dialogue. <laughs> the average Latter-day Saint gets his or her version of church history in Sunday school. And that's when, if uh, that version of church history starts to change, that's when it will actually, to use um, uh, a country boy metaphor, the water will get to the end of the row. Um, and that's what we need, is for people to understand that story be uncomfortable, it's okay to be uncomfortable with our racial past. We need to sit in that discomfort and then use that as a motivation for moving forward. This is a panel on Mormon diversity and there is a rainbow elephant in the room. I, I represent that rainbow elephant by being on the board of directors of Affirmation. Uh, panelists talk about that. This has not been an easy time in this church if you are LGBT or family or friend of LGBT. In fact, for many people, it's been a rotten time, and for too many people, it's been the end of the line. We've had an alarming surge, of particularly teenage suicides, and most of those are gay men, young gay men. Talk to the group about that. What do we do? Well, I'm glad you gave me an easy question. Um, I, my brother-in-law is gay, and he and his partner have been together for 35 years longer than my husband and I have been married. Uh, 
I, I simply seen my own children uh, grow in love for their uncle and his partner, and all of them were deeply, deeply upset by the, the, the change, the November change, where children of, of gay couples, and there, there was a couple in my, there is a couple, I don't know if they're there now, but uh, a gay couple who wanted their children to be raised Mormon. They recognized, one of them recognized in his partner that so much of what he loved of him was because of the Mormonism. And so that was where they had chosen to be. Um, I predict that that element where the children cannot be baptized is going to quietly disappear. Uh, this is one where when I was asked to predict the next five years of Mormonism, I said LGBT, that, that issue is just going to continue to fester. Uh, the lines are so rigidly drawn. Uh, I think Jody can talk about being a dragon, dragon mom. Uh, I think most of us, if, we, if we're not aware of family members or friends who are gay, uh, we probably don't know enough people. And there are people in this audience, Bob Reese is, is one who has been really on top of, of that particular issue. Uh, several here who have actively attended affirmation. Um, I've, I tend to work individually. I've had a number of former students come out to me and I work with them quietly, even long after they, they've been my students. So I'm still on the one-on-one, one-to-one, but I don't believe that that policy change is going to stay for long at all. I'm honored to uh, say that I was asked by Affirmation Leadership to serve as an advisor as a mentor to the organization, and uh, I readily accepted. I was privileged to attend a uh, leadership retreat in May of this year. Had a delightful time with my LGBT sisters and brothers. But speaking to diversity, Greg, you really touch on a broad issue. Whether it's differences in sexual orientation, gender, race, ethnicity. Are we too quick as a people to define ites? We have Lamanites, Nephites. Uh, you know, do we perpetuate that within this faith? Uh, might we not be better served if we dispense with the ites and just see everyone as a brother or a sister, regardless of all of those other ite issues? Not to deny that they are there, but to reverence them rather than to speak ill of them. Uh, my wife and I were at a family wedding a month ago. Coming back uh, in the airport, a young man was handing out a publication. I didn't know what it was, but I knew I was in for a long flight, so yeah, I'll take one. And uh, he happened to be Jehovah's Witness and gave me a couple of copies of the Awake magazine. And I, I've read the two copies, and one of the things that struck me was the view of that faith on LGBT issues. Uh, they spoke how they thought it was not uh, appropriate that God had created a prohibition, but 
The telling part for me was the very last paragraph on the topic. It said, and we will not engage to reverse laws that have been devised to protect the rights of others, including our LGBT brothers and sisters. They respected the rights of others, and I don't know that we do that well at all. In fact, I would suggest we don't do it well at all. Uh, if we think we are right on something, we tend to trample on the views of others who aren't like us. We see them as ites. I think that there, when it comes to differences, whatever those differences are, whether they are religious um, or ethnicity or culture um, or um, personal choice, um, in, um, I, I don't know what the right word is, sexual orientation, but that's the one we're using. So, or whether it's in sexual orientation. But it, it seems to me that uh, differences, whatever they are, um, we open a door called fear. And this being walks in. And this being doesn't just walk into the room where we are, but it uh, actually walks into us. And once fear is there, we, um, it, it takes hold of, um, of that difference and it sees that difference, whatever it is, as, as evil. Um, you know, she's tattooed. She cannot be a very good person. You know, because tattooed people, because, you know, the prophets have said, we, we don't do that. And, well, yeah, of course she was baptized two years ago, and the tattoos are from five years ago, but that doesn't matter. She can't be a good person. You know, he's gay and he cannot possibly be a good person because, well, he's gay. But, so this fear takes hold and makes the differences something that is evil. That difference, that accepting somebody else's differences from us means that we are accepting an evil. And I, I think that that is wrong that differences are not evil. I, I look at the people on this panel and, you know, in all honesty, you, you can read the little, the little booklet about, you know, me, and I'm, I'm like this big compared to these people. And yet, if I refrain from being around people great like Margaret and, and Brother Gray and, and my Paul, you know, I would not learn more, and I certainly would not grow. And fear says, don't be around that which is different from you, because sameness is not only comfortable, but sameness is right, and sameness is righteous. And that's not correct, because that's not how, how God does it at all. We, we can use as a template um, the, the calling of the twelve when Jesus walked about and they were called. Um, take a look sometime at the lives of each one of those men, how very different they were from one another and extremely different from Jesus himself. Jesus didn't fear differences. And yet in the midst of those differences, he taught them about unity and he taught them about working together 
and not being afraid of one another and not allowing that fear to come in. And he emphasized to them that they have got to be one because if they are not one, they are not his. And I echo that same thing. If we are not one, we are not God's. We do not belong to him. How, how can we contribute to a young man being rejected in our war because he is chosen or um, he, is, um, he has been directed down a different road um, in sexual orientation than we have? How can we do that? And then not just that rejection of him, but that he then goes off because nobody wants him. Of his church family, nobody wants him, and he commits suicide. Every time somebody is rejected, and then that is the end, and that person was within our circle, our circle of influence, we have to hold ourselves accountable. How can we not? Because every time we shirk that accountability, or shirk that responsibility, and we say, well, it wasn't my responsibility to be the greeter at the door, or I wasn't the bishop of the ward, or, well, I wasn't the young men's president, you know, or I'm not the young women's president. Does that really relieve us of that responsibility? It, it doesn't. And so, looking forward, what do we need to do to make that change? We, we do it in our own wards. Regardless of who or what somebody is or was, can we not accept them and see the differences that they have that we can learn from them and then take that learning and grow more? That because they have a different perspective or, or view on something doesn't mean that we cannot learn from them. It doesn't mean that we have to accept everything that they believe, but it does mean that we can learn from them. The only thing I would add is, um, you know, I, I don't get to make church policy, um, but I do get to decide how I respond to the Savior's command to love my brother and sister as myself, and that includes everyone. Albert Jensen is here, and I don't want to cut into his time, and you don't want to cut into his time, so I'm going to make a brief concluding remark and then ask that you just stay put as we shift the stage around. But I want to make that concluding remark. The rhetorical question is why would a black person have wanted to join this church prior to 1978? I know in the case of Darius what the answer to that question is. It's an answer similar to the question that I asked John Gustav Rathel, who was the current affirmation president. He said in 2005, I felt an overpowering prompting from the spirit to rejoin the church. Now he's still excommunicated, but he's in the pews every week. And he said subsequently, as I have talked to gay and lesbian members of this church who have come back in, he said all of them have done that after 2005. He said there is something brooding, and I don't know what it is. So it's, it's beyond our comprehension what's happening with our LGBT brothers and sisters but it's something that we have to take seriously and we have to make sure that it's a happy outcome for them. Thank you for your attention. Please stay put. Father Jensen, if you can come up, we'll shift things around. And have
for listening to the Dialogue podcasts in honor of our 50th anniversary jubilee. If you enjoy listening, please consider becoming a subscriber to Dialogue by visiting dialoguejournal.com or supporting us with a donation. Thank you.